Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Open up Zechariah chapter 6 today, and this is actually the last vision that the Lord gives Zechariah. Remember, he has in one night these, these 10 different visions, or eight if you want to categorize them that way, and all in one night, and this is the last one, and it actually completes a circuit of where God started these visions at the very beginning. So before we get started here, let's open up in prayer and we'll dive right in. Lord, again, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that we get to gather right here around your word as a family. And Lord, we pray that you would pour your spirit out in this place. God, we pray that you'd place your hedge of protection around us. God, we pray that you would watch over us in all that we do. And as we put our hands to serving you, putting our hands to the plow, we pray that we not look back, but we look straight ahead at what you're calling each one of us to do, Lord. We love you and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, this, this is the last vision that God gives Zechariah. And you know, as you start to study these, especially in the Old Testament, when you have these prophetic visions and things that you're diving into, you always wanna make sure that there's a couple of keys. Number one, most of the time, it will always point to Jesus somehow. That's number one. Secondly, to, for you to figure out how it does, you really need to lean on the Holy Spirit to teach that to you. And that's obviously from 1 John 2, 27 and 28. So if you remember from Zechariah, he is a post-exile prophet. He went back after the captivity in Babylon to go back and to help rebuild the temple and the Lord raises up, obviously, Ezra to go back and to help rebuild the temple. Haggai and Zechariah are prophesying about the same time. Haggai is encouraging the people to finish the temple. Remember, they pause because, because of spiritual immaturity. Be, during that pause, Haggai disappears. God raises up Zechariah to encourage the people to move on to spiritual maturity in order to finish the temple. And so the whole book of Zechariah is, is giving his people insight to where they're going after all of this. They've been in captivity. They need encouragement. They're trying to finish what God put their hand to, and they're getting stalled. And God is saying, hey, hang tight. We're going into the millennium down the road, but there's going to be a lot of judgment. There's going to be a lot of things unfold, and then Jesus is going to come set up his, his throne on the earth. So if you remember, this book is actually the most messianic book in the Old Testament. The whole book speaks of Jesus. It introduces Jesus as the branch. It speaks of Jesus as the stone. We're gonna talk about his throne later on. We covered this earlier, but Jesus, the Nazarene, the king is gonna be riding on, in on a donkey in chapter nine. He's gonna be the shepherd. He, we actually are gonna study his betrayal for 30 pieces of silver and what they did with the money, which is really interesting. We're gonna talk about Jesus being pierced, that's later on. 
And then his return in power, destroying his enemies is all in uh, chapter 14. Okay, so these visions, remember Zechariah gets 10 visions in one night, starting in chapter one, verse seven, and it goes all the way through, kind of towards the end of chapter six, but really the vision stops at verse eight, and then the last set of verses in chapter six discuss the crowning of Jesus. So we're gonna take that next week. But we studied the riders under the myrtle tree, the four horns, the four smiths or carpenters, a man with a measuring line, Joshua and Satan, Jesus as the branch. And remember, the Lord uses Jesus as the branch in four different ways, which all link to the four different gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're gonna have Jesus and the lampstand and two olive trees. We talked about that. The flying scroll or roll, the woman in the ephah. We took that and that's actually how Babylon will be returned to its home base to be judged during the tribulation. And then today, the last vision these four chariots or four horsemen is what we're gonna look at, these eight verses. And then it goes into describing after those visions, feast days, the first arrival of Christ, and then the second arrival of Christ is kind of closes out the book. So in chapter six though, the Lord's giving Zechariah a vision of these four chariots. And these are the final, this is the final vision that actually culminates the first vision. So where, where God started with the four horsemen, the four horns, the four craftsmen, the man on the red horse. Remember we talked about how that was Jesus. It goes all the way and it culminates here with God sending out these judgments, these four chariots. And it ultimately will lead where all of this is going. What God is showing Israel is that it leads to the overthrowing of the final Gentile power. So remember all the way from from Babylon to Persia, to Greece, to Rome, the Gentile kingdoms were ruling over Israel. And their whole goal was to wipe Israel out, to take them, take their land, dispossess them, let them not be a people anymore. And so now what God is saying is, there's coming a time where the king will return and overthrow their rule and set up the kingdom, the millennium. And during that time to set that up, you have to crown Jesus the king of kings, and that's what the end of the chapter is for chapter six. Okay, let's get started here in verse one. And I turned and lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. Okay, this vision once again opens up with that Hebrew connective. In the English, it's and, and really, if you want to, to really dig into the Hebrew, it's, then I returned and once again looked up. So as that, this vision's just continuing with Zechariah here. And we have four chariots with horses, we'll see that in a minute, coming out from between two mountains made of brass. Now, most people associate these two mountains as being Mount Zion and the Mount of Olives. And you could make that, that argument but the valley between those two mountains in, in our world today sets the future stage of divine judgment when Jesus returns on Mount Megiddo and destroys all of the enemies through that valley that kind of runs between those two mountains. And so while the Bible doesn't necessarily say what two mountains God's talking about, we, based on the rest of the vision, you could make that conclusion. So if you look on this map, 
Mount Zion is where that red pin is. Just to the northeast of it a little bit is the Mount of Olives. And what runs between those two mountains is the Valley of Jehoshaphat, or the Kidron Valley, as the Bible calls it in some places. So look at this in Joel chapter 3. We're just going to take a couple of verses. This speaks of that judgment of when Jesus judges the nations that have come against Israel in the end times to try to wipe them out. Starting in verse 1 here, for behold, in those days and in that time when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem. So that's happened. Israel is a state as of May 14th of 1948. I will also gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there for my people and for my heritage, Israel. Okay, so notice God is doing this to plead with them for his people. That's how you know this is about the end times during that seven-year tribulation when God once again turns the focus of the world on Israel, which you're seeing start to unfold right now. Okay, whom they have scattered, so in terms of the nations have scattered Israel, among the nations and parted my land. So they're trying to dissect or part God's land and trying to take it. And they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy for an harlot and sold a girl for wine that they might drink. Now look at the end there in verse three, how what they are doing has to do with child trafficking. And in verse three there at the end, the nations that are against God and against Israel are trying to traffic his people. And God is not going to stand for that for very long. And that's one of the many, many reasons why Jesus has to return and judge this world is because of the wickedness you're seeing in the headlines all over the place. But God can't let sin just lay idle. There comes a point where it reaches up to heaven, just like in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when Jesus, Jesus and the two angels come down to Abraham and Sarai and, and they say, the cry has reached to heaven. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah has reached up to heaven. In other words, it's gotten so grievous and it's built up so much that it's entered into my throne room. I've got to come and judge it. And the same is true with what you see going on today. It's stacking up one after another. And it's exactly what God told Abram. Remember, after 400 years, your descendants will return to this land for the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. So it wasn't, he was giving them space to repent and it wasn't quite full yet. And it got to a point God knew where they would not repent and so he would have to judge. And that's what you're seeing right now in the world, the setup leading into the tribulation. Okay, in verse 12, in that same chapter in Joel 3, when you go down to verse 12, look what it says. Let the heathen be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there will I sit to judge all the heathen round about. Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come get you down, for the press is full. Now what he's talking about Remember in Revelation when the angel judges and he has the sickle and God even says Jesus compares this battle, the battle of Armageddon, he compares it to treading the wine press because he's gonna come back and vanquish his enemies. Remember the blood comes up through that valley up to the horse's bridle about four feet high or so and he compares that to treading the wine press 
and putting the sickle of the wrath of Almighty God into that area to judge it. Okay, and he says right here, for their wickedness is great, multitudes, multitudes, in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. He calls this the valley of decision. And the note that I put there for you on, below the picture is that you and I, all of us stand in that same place of decision. Every single day you stand in a place of decision. Will you serve the Lord or will you serve your flesh? And when you stand in that place of decision, God is a gentleman, he gives you space, you have free will, you don't have to serve him if you don't want to, but there are consequences for not doing so. And so when you stand in that place of decision, you are standing in a place of which path do I take? Remember in Joshua said, this day we, we choose our, as for me and my household this day, we choose to serve the Lord. That's the same place where you and I stand. You can stand in that decision where every single day you have to wake up and choose Will we serve the Lord or will we not today? And that goes for all of us in here. Your kids, if you're in school, if you're in a place of business, wherever you are, every single day you've got to stand in that valley of decision. Now, when you go to Zechariah 14, God, this is a, a pretty detailed chapter. The whole chapter is detailed about Jesus coming back and stepping foot, remember our, our pen back there on Mount Zion, Mount, Mount of Olives is to the northeast, where Jesus steps foot on the Mount of Olives and it cleaves in half, and then a river of life runs through it. So starting in verse one here, behold the day the Lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. So this is the very end of the tribulation. And the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle, in the day of battle. And we talked about this a few weeks ago about the book, The Wars of the Lord. See, God has has fought a lot of battles that you and I don't know about. And they're written in a book somewhere that, that I'm really looking forward to reading when we get there on the other side. But there are a lot of battles God has fought. But in the day of battle, there's a specific day he's referencing here. And I'm not sure exactly which day he's talking about. It may be the day that when Satan rebelled in between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, it may be that day that the Lord went forth and fought in that battle where the earth sat dormant for potentially billions of years. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, in case you didn't know where it was. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a very great valley. So it's gonna split in half. Jesus is going to step on that mountain with the pressure of his foot and split that mountain in half, and it's good, the whole earth is going to move for him. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountain, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah. So God's even telling his people, Israel, 
Remember in the days of Uzziah in the Old Testament, you've got to flee at that moment in the same manner. And the Lord my God shall come and all the saints, so there you are. If you didn't think you were in the book of Zechariah, there you are, right there. In Zechariah 14, verse 6, the Lord shall come with all the saints. That's us. And remember in Revelation 19, we come back with him. When he goes to step foot on the Mount of Olives, we are with him. We get to see that. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark because Jesus is the light of the world. So he will be the light during the millennium but in, in the new heaven and the new earth. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go forth out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. So he's talking about toward the Mediterranean and toward the, um, the Dead Sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. Okay, so in other words, it's gonna go forever. Jehoshaphat, that valley of decision, Jehoshaphat, that name actually means Yahweh is judge or Jehovah judges. And the mountains, okay, notice that the mountains in the vision Zechariah has are made of brass or bronze. And that's a Levitical symbol for judgment. So everywhere you see bronze or brass in the Old Testament, you always have to just think judgment. That means judgment. Okay, so connect that. Remember the brazen altar in Exodus 27, verses one and two? And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square, and the height thereof shall be three cubits, and thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners. His horn shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass or bronze. The only difference between brass and bronze is the amount of tin that you mix into it. So in the Old Testament, a lot of times it's, it's almost interchangeable. But brass for the bronze altar is the place of judgment. Okay, now the other key, these metals throughout the Old Testament, they always mean something. So like silver always speaks of blood. That's why Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He, it was, and remember uh, Judas even says, I betrayed innocent blood because the silver the tabernacle had to rest on silver sockets when they put the poles in it to lift it up to transport it because that covenant that they carried with them through the wilderness rested on the blood of Jesus. So it spoke of his blood. Now, the place where you see this bronze used or brazen used in a, in a point of judgment, the most famous location is in Numbers 21. So remember... Remember the, the Israelites, they sinned, they betrayed God. God sends these fiery serpents into their camp and a lot of them are being bit by the serpents and dying. And Moses goes to the Lord and look in verse, starting verse six in Numbers 21. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee, speaking of Moses and Aaron. Remember they murmured constantly through the wilderness. There was constant complaining. Did you just bring us out of Egypt to die? You know, we had at least had cucumbers and leeks there. We had good food. We were slaves, but we had provisions. They complained constantly against Moses and Aaron. And God 
God does not take murmuring lightly. So you've got to be careful about that in your life. If you are complaining about your situation, you need to repent and not do that because God wants to use that situation for his glory somehow. And the circumstances, the situation you're in, God is for you, not against you. So if you're in a, and if you're in a tough spot, if you're in a spot where you don't know what the Lord is doing in your life, you need to ask him and get private in your private place with him and ask, Lord, what's going on right here? How, how can I serve you in the midst of whatever situation I'm in? Remember in James, I count it all joy. So you've got to count it joy. Okay, and the Lord, and Lord that he take away the serpents from us and Moses prayed for the people. So Moses intercedes, just like Jesus intercedes for us. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So the remedy was all they had to do was look at to this brass serpent. The pole that, he, that Moses put it on was very tall too. Think about millions of people in the wilderness roaming around. He had to put it somewhere high and the pole had to be high enough that if you were in the very back of the congregation, you could still see it somehow. So it's, it's not just, you know, a, a pole this high and he stuck it in a, in a valley somewhere. This thing was probably, it could have been 14, 20 feet high or something, just lifting it up. And it's going to obviously speak of Jesus so the remedy, what did he do? He put a serpent, which represents sin, made out of, bra of brass or brazen, which represents judgment. So sin being judged, brass is the metal that can withstand fire. And he put it on a pole or a cross and he put it very high so that all you had to do to be healed and to be protected from the death of the serpent was to look to it. And so you can see how it's already speaking of Jesus. Now you go throughout the rest of the Old Testament and God doesn't explain it anywhere as to why he used this strange remedy to heal the children of Israel until you get to John chapter three and Jesus explains it for us and it actually leads to the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. So it starts in verse 14. Remember John is, uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. So notice what Jesus is saying. If you have not believed in Jesus, you are already condemned to a place of eternal separation from him. The key to get out of that is to trust and believe on him. Then you give your life to him and you get saved through Romans 10, 9, which we'll talk about at the end of the message here because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. 
So Jesus is linking to what Moses did in the wilderness, so must I do. I must be lifted up so high that anyone who's, who is perishing, all they have to do is look to me and they'll be saved. Okay, so there's four chariots coming out from these two mountains. They're riding through the Valley of Judgment and they likely represent the four horses in Revelation 6, which you'll, we'll see here in just a verse in just a minute. But remember Revelation 6, we have the white horse is the first seal, that's the Antichrist. The Jews will think they're entering the millennium because they're making a, a covenant of death with the false Messiah, according to Isaiah, when they're re really entering the tribulation. Then there's the red horse in verses three through four, where power is given to him that, that, he, that he can take peace from the earth. Remember, those are wars and rumors of wars. Then there's a black horse. He that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. Remember, there's hyperinflation, famine, shortages, and then finally the pale horse in verses seven and eight. And he comes with, there's actually two riders on the pale horse or the green horse. It's death and hell followed with him and powers given unto them. And that's the only horse where God gives a, a ratio. Powers given to him for a fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. So there's fourfold within that fourth horse, which is also interesting. Now remember, when you work backwards from there, before the Antichrist can come forth, which starts the 70th week of Daniel, Jesus has to take the scroll and loose those seals. Before he takes the scroll, we, the 24 elders, are in heaven, raptured, throwing our crowns to his feet, and then he comes forward to do that. So when you work backwards, then you see clearly that the church is not there at that point, that we have to be raptured, we're in the throne room of the universe, we are worshiping Jesus, then he takes the scroll, then the false covenant is established, the Antichrist can be revealed. Okay, in verse two of Zechariah six, in the first chariot were red horses, in the second chariot black, the third white, and in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay horses. So you have these same four horses, and in Hebrew, these grizzled horses, it means spotted as with hail and marked, which is kind of interesting. In Revelation, it's a pale horse. And that in Greek, it's actually where we get the, the word for chlorine. It's a chloros. It's very pale. It's sickly and green looking. So it's a, it's a horse that carries diseases. And you see those same four horses we just looked at in Revelation 6. In verse 4, Zechariah answers, and then I said, answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, these are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. So notice the four spirits of heaven. These are the four spirits of heaven, which go forth from standing before the Lord. Okay, God is in, is in total control of this at this time. You see from 1 Kings 22, you see the whole host of heaven standing before God. In 1 Kings 22, verse 19, and he said, Hear thou therefore the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right hand and on his left. Okay, so these four horsemen, remember Jesus sends them forth. 
he gives them, he delegates some authority to them. They are some kind of super angels that go out and start these judgments. But when we are gone as the church, angels stand before the Lord. Gabriel confirms that in Luke 1, 19. And the angel answered unto me, said, I am, said, I am Gabriel that stand in the presence of God and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. Okay, remember a destroying angel throughout the, the plagues on Ex, in Exodus in Egypt. The last one, remember, was the death of the firstborn. Okay, the destroying angel was sent by God. In, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you, the destroyer. Jesus was not the one that killed the firstborn. He, he pushed back, he pulled back his protection and the destroying angel went forth and took out all the firstborn, both of man and beast. And so the destroyer, there's a super angel there. Okay, the four spirits of heaven. Remember in 2 Kings 19, that one angel in one night just killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers? That's in 2 Kings 19, 35 through 36. So the bottom line is, you do not want to mess around with angels. You don't, you don't want to get into a war with them. You don't want to try to fight them. You let the Lord Jesus fight those battles for you and you, because he's in total control. But you can stay away from the path of the, of the destroyer, apparently, from Psalm 17, verse 4. Considering the works of men, by the word of thy lips, by God's lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. I think that's fascinating that by the word of God, you can keep yourself out of the path of the destroyer. But to do that, that means you have to be in the word of God and you have to know the word of God. So you've got to do that. We are commanded not to murmur. I mentioned that a little bit ago. So that we are not taken by the destroyer. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. So isn't that fascinating? God has a link there to the destroyer. The fourfold spirits or winds are often used when involving judgment, both good and bad. And you see this in Jeremiah 49, 36. We actually talked about this last week in our, in our deep study on Israel and the wars coming up. But upon Elam, remember Elam, the southwest portion of Iran, will I bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven so it's that judgment coming forth. In Ezekiel 37, verse 9, then, he, then said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy son of man, and say to the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. Those are the dry bones that come back together that become the massive army of Israel. Remember in Daniel 7, verse 2, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea and four great beasts came, came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Remember Nebuchadnezzar sees the statue of metals, the metallic man? Well, Daniel sees it as these four beasts. That's the same four kingdoms, but Daniel sees them as they are, these ferocious beasts 
Okay, and then you see it in Daniel 8, 8. Therefore, the he-goat waxed very great. When he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones towards the four winds of heaven. That's the, those, the four little, the horns that come up. Remember, there's the little horn that comes up that's the Antichrist in Daniel 8, which is a fascinating study. You also see it in Daniel 11, verse 4, and when he shall stand upon up, his kingdom shall be broken and shall be divided toward the four winds of heaven. Again, that's a judgment. Zechariah 2.6, remember we studied this earlier. Ho, ho, come forth and flee from the land of the north, saith the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven. And this theme just continues all the way into the, into the New Testament. Matthew 24, verse 31, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And you see that in Mark 13, verse 27. Then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from the uttermost parts of the earth to the uttermost parts of heaven. And then Revelation 7, verse 1, the four angels standing on the four corners. Remember, those are the magnetic corners of the earth. It doesn't mean a flat earth. The earth is round. It's a sphere. God made it that way. It's miraculous. The four corners are the, the magnetic corners, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor any tree. In that last part of Zechariah 6, verse 5 here, God declares the Lord of all the earth. Now, this is how you know he's looking toward the millennial reign, where God will be the Lord of all the earth. And you see this in, remember Melchizedek in Genesis 14, verse 19, and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. In Joshua 3, 11, behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into the Jordan. Psalms 97, verse five, the hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord and at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. So that theme just goes throughout the whole Bible God, the Lord of all the earth. It's looking toward the millennial reign, and you see this in Micah chapter four, the first five verses. But in the last days, it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills and above, and the people shall flow unto it. So where God places, remember all throughout the Bible, God says, I will place my holy king on the hill of Zion. He's talking about Jesus' temple, the millennial temple. It likely will be built very high on a mountain where all the people can see it. Again, like the brazen serpent in the wilderness. Something very similar. Because in Micah 4.1, it shall be in the top of the mountains. And all the people will flow to it. So remember when our study in the millennium, the nations have to bring sacrifices to Jesus again in the millennium. And if they don't, there's a judgment. Remember, it doesn't rain and, he, and God prophesies that Egypt will not bring a gift at one point. And so they'll be in a drought or a famine for a while. And many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob. And he shall teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
and he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations. So he sits there in judgment and he rebukes strong nations afar off and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now remember we looked at this, the United Nations takes that verse and they only take that portion. Remember on their statue outside their headquarters? that they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And they stop right there. They don't finish the verse because it finishes, nation shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine, under his fig tree. That's a millennium reference. And none shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk everyone in the name of his God. Boy, that is not happening right now. I mean, people are definitely not walking in the name of our God. When you look around, I mean, just look at even just what happened two weeks ago now with the war breaking out in the Gaza Strip and women being murdered, children being de decapitated, babies slaughtered, taking, they're taking hostages and prisoners, it is, it is absolutely a bloody mess and it's escalating very quickly for this ground invasion that, that Israel's about to take under in Gaza. So we need to be praying, praying that the Lord gives us some more space here and pray for his people. There are Christians, again, on both sides of this conflict, Christians in Israel, Christians in Gaza, Christians in Lebanon, Christians in, in the northern part of Israel, the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the Golan Heights, there are a lot of God's people being put in a bad position right now. But in verse five here, Micah four to finish out, for all people will walk, everyone in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of the Lord our God, not just for a little while, but forever and ever, forever and ever. That's amazing. Okay, in the last couple of verses here, in verse six of Zechariah, the black horses which are therein go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, and the grizzled go forth toward the south country. Okay, now this order is different than in Revelation. Remember in Revelation, it's white, red, black, and then green or pale. This order is different. So what's going on here? What you are seeing is what these horsemen are doing after they are released in Revelation 6. So, they are released upon the earth in Revelation 6. The Antichrist goes forth as the white horse. It's followed, remember in Daniel 8, by peace he shall destroy many. It's followed through that peacemaking. It's a false peace, a false hope, which followed by wars and rumors of wars, the red horse, which is followed by the black horse, famine and hyperinflation, which is then followed by the pale horse for pestilences, diseases, the beast of the field, and, the, and those, the sword. So then the pestilences go forth. Here though, you have the black going forth to a specific spot. It's not just that they're released upon the earth, the black goes forth to the north country, and then the white goes after them. So they're released on the earth in Revelation 6, and then you're seeing how they're operating some here in Zechariah 6. The black goes to the north country, which causes hyperinflation and a wiping out of those people in the north. 
the Antichrist then follows behind them to take that portion of the land in the North Country, which is likely Russia, modern-day Russia. But inflation and famine will hit the North Country. The Antichrist follows with conquest and victory over that land. And meanwhile, pestilence and beasts go to the South, which is likely Egypt. And the Lord is not saying the West and the East here because the Mediterranean seas to the west and it's desert to the east. So most enemy traffic in Israel actually flows through the north and the south. But you're seeing, you're getting a glimpse of how these, these super angels, the horsemen, will be operating on the earth in some regard. So it's not just that they follow this order from Revelation 6. They're released on the earth in that way. And then they're operating in different geographic locations around the world during the tribulation in that way. Okay, in verse seven, and the, and the bay went forth and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Now it's not just isolated. And, and notice that, remember in the tribulation, it's not just isolated to Israel in the Middle East. This is a, a global event that you and I will not be a part of, praise God. But after the black and white horse chariots have executed judgments in the north country, the grizzled have gone forth in the south, they all go forth throughout the whole earth. In the last verse here in verse eight, then cried he upon me and spake unto me saying, behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. So there was something in the north that God needed quieting. And it's a little bit of a mystery of what that is, but it had to be quieted at some point during the tribulation. Now, the north country, it's traditionally the, the direction of Israel's enemies. Babylon, from obviously Jeremiah, all throughout the book of Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Daniel, and Gog and Magog, from the Gog and Magog war we looked at in detail last week in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So the north country, the north is always a direction of God's enemies. Remember when Satan in Isaiah 14 said, I will set my throne upon the sides of the north. He's, there's something about the north that the enemy wants. And it's a, like I said, it's a little bit of a mystery of what it is, but you could go search that out in the scriptures and find out. If you find out, let me know. I'd love to hear. Uh, immediately after the overthrow of Gentile powers, though, the Lord's spirit is quieted and Jesus will be crowned as the rightful king on the earth. Now, it's another indication that the visions in Zechariah from chapter one all the way through chapter six, verse eight, that they're integrated and they complete this theme of judgment that's required to establish the kingdom. Remember when God took, took the Israelites out of Egypt? Do you remember what he said? Remember he told them, I had to take you out because I could not dwell with the sin that was there. He had to judge that sin and take them to a place, hopefully, where there was no sin so that he could, he could dwell with them there. So there's a key there. Part of your life to make sure that the Lord can dwell with you in your life as a believer, when you are born again and Holy Spirit filled, you want to make sure that you're not living in open, unrepentant sin. If you are living and walking in sin, 
there is a principle that you will continually get further and further and further away from the Lord. There comes a point in your walk with him that you can't be ignorant of things forever. And when you are Holy Spirit filled, you have, you have the Holy Spirit convicting you of sin in your life. And at that point, you've got to yield it to the Lord. And part of the, the beautiful thing of it is 1 John 1, 9, that if you will confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. There is nothing you can do in your life that Jesus cannot take care of. And I'm telling you that there's nothing in your life that he doesn't already know also. So you may as well take it to him. You may as well repent and get on your knees and confess to the Lord on the sanctification process so that he can cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Then when you're doing that, you'll be clothed in the garments of the army of God because you and I are serving in an army right now. He looks at you as serving in the military, but his military, not for a nation, but for, for the king, the king, Jesus. That's why in Revelation 19, the armies of heaven, which were in heaven, followed him upon white horses. You get the chance right now, and it's very limited. We, you know, we don't have a ton of time left. Even if the rapture doesn't happen in our lifetime, None of us will be here 100 years from now, guaranteed. We're going home at some point. And so you have a small window of time to serve the king with your entire life and with whatever gifts and talents he's entrusted in you. And what you want to do, the greatest journey of your life will be to figure out what God has for you and how he's equipped you to serve him in a mighty way in his kingdom to be a part of the army. Now, armies, they don't sit back idly. They take orders, they have commandments, they follow rules and regulations. They walk according to a leader and that's what you are to do. Walk according to Jesus and what he has for you. And to know what he has for you, you have to get into the word of God. That's the only place where God can sanctify you it's the only place from Romans 10, 17 that you can build your faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. There is no faith in anything else in your life. There's no faith in a, in a sermon. There's no faith in another, another book you read. There is no faith in anything else you do. There's only faith in the word of God. And that's how you build it. All of those other things are great, but they cannot take the place in your life of the Bible. The Bible has to be the central focus of everything you do. It's the foundation, and then you build everything else thereon. And it's, it is the greatest thing you can do in your life. And leading your children in that regard will pay dividends for all of eternity. To pour into your kids, to equip them now, to put the Lord's commandments at the frontlet of their mind and in the depth of their heart, that's what you need to do to help equip your kids. And God promises, no matter what they're doing right now, if you raise them up in the way of the Lord, they shall not depart therefrom. And yeah, they can be rebellious. They can go astray at times. They can do things that disappoint you as a, as a parent. I mean, my goodness, we do the same thing to God all the time. 
but it's like the prodigal son. There will come a point that they will return. You have to teach them and raise them up in that way and buried in their hearts. Now, if you are here and you don't know the Lord, as I mentioned, it's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You are born again instantaneously from John 3, and you can never be unborn in the spirit. You have to be born again. Then the sanctification process starts. You are equipped in the word of God to live for him. He will shed things and burn things from your life that you didn't even know you needed to have burned away because he's a consuming, refining fire. And it's just like, I used this analogy once here. You can only get so close to the sun that anything from the earth has to melt away. There's nothing on this earth you can send to touch the sun. It, It gets into a proximity, it will melt away. And the same is true in your walk with Jesus. There's nothing in this earth you can take with you. The closer you get, it's got to melt away. And then as that refiner takes away those parts of your life, you're equipped to serve the king. So if you're here and you're not saved, do that this morning. Do that, confess with your mouth, that's all it takes. The most powerful member of your body confessing the Lord Jesus and you are saved. Your tongue is the most powerful member of your body from James. There is life and death in the power of the tongue. So you need to watch what you say and what you confess, what you speak over your family and your children. It's how you got saved and it's how you bless them and how you live a blessed life. Use words that are life-giving from the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this time together. God, we love you. We praise your name. We thank you for the study of Zechariah. Lord, next week as we look at the crowning of King Jesus, we pray that you prepare our hearts to look at the pivotal moment in all of human history when Jesus will set his rightful throne on the earth as promised to Mary. Lord, as the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7, that a righteous king will rule on the earth forever. You have promised that throughout the entire Bible. And we look forward to that day to serving a righteous king on the earth Lord, we pray that if there is anyone out there listening that they don't know you, we pray that right now they would get on their knees in their quiet place and confess you with their mouth, the most powerful member of their body, and yield their lives to you and forever be born again in the spirit, never to be separated from the love of God ever again. And we thank you, Lord, so much for the word that the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. And we pray that you would gird us up and cover us by the word of God and give us direction for our lives as we leave this place, Lord. For it is in the matchless name of Jesus that we pray, amen.